Hello, Kaiju Lovers! And welcome back to a brand new episode of Monster Conversation. <laughs> We're your hosts, Nathan. Or Nate, Elijah. whichever. <laughs> whichever. And Elijah. <laughs> happy birthday, Elijah. <laughs> happy birthday, Ray. And happy birthday, Nathan. <laughs> this is our second annual crossover. Because if you didn't listen to our big annual crossover last year, you, me, and a certain Mr. Harryhausen all share a birthday. And given that we are both kaiju podcasters... We had to. <laughs> it, it, would, it would have been wrong if we didn't. It, it really, been really would wrong. have been. It really, really would have been. And yeah, today, well, and we should also explain, last year we did Clash of the Titans because you don't remember this. You kind of, during a, a chat we had on the phone, you just offhand said, as in, what order do you want? How do you want to do this? What order do you want to do? It was like, let's go backwards. <laughs> hey, you know, it worked in Ready Player One. Maybe it'll work here. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Ready play? Are we talking about the movie or the book? The movie. Okay, well, I can forgive the movie. The book is insufferable. <laughs> I'm apparently in the minority on that. <laughs> the book is insufferable. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm because, not sorry. <laughs> is it because it doesn't have enough Ray Harryhausen references? Oh, it does. No, it doesn't. It does not. It references everything else, but it does not reference Ray Harryhausen. It tries to reference Tokusatsu. Keyword tries. It does. <laughs> it does, but it's terrible. We have Ultraman and Leo Prudhan. Yeah, but it was lame. <laughs> it wasn't. It was so cool. D don't get me and started. And we have Mecha Godzilla. Like okay, are we talking about the book or the movie? Clarification. The book. Okay, the no. Book. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's. It was lame in the book. <laughs> it was not. I was like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. Wow. You wanted zero suspense and the hero just owning the villain and not using the three-minute timer to create any sort of tension? Hey, man, it worked. It's a video game. That is the worst justification I have ever heard for that book. But anyway, saying, we're not here to talk about that because that will send us into a rabbit trail that will be Patreon exclusive. <laughs> and I will have to hit the Rantmaster button several times. <laughs> and I've, I've seen what you can do, sir. I have, I have heard your rants. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But anyway, today on Monster Conversation Numero Dos, because we're working backwards today, we're talking about Sinbad and... And we just got copyright strike by Survivor, and now our podcasts are all going down the drain. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. But you're not a real YouTuber or a podcaster until you get a copyright strike. <laughs> Look, my 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 personal YouTube channel already got that. I don't need my podcast getting it. Oh, who nailed you? <laughs> who do you think, Toho? <laughs> oh, so you're... You're like uh, the Brandon Tennell. Brandon Tennell, you know, a flag, a footage flag by Toho. <laughs> I did do that. I did do that in the in the top ten Godzilla designs video. I did. I I did 
Footage flagged by Toho. <laughs> Footage flagged by Toho. Well, and the weird thing is, is that with Brendan Tennell anyway, the, uh, the footage, the weirdest footage gets flagged by Toho, but not other ones. It's really confusing. It's weird. You know what else is weird? The fact it took them 20 years to do three Sinbad movies. <laughs> and none of them are related. This is an unconnected trilogy. Even though it is technically a sequel. The stuff it's I labeled. read the stuff I read said it wasn't. The stuff I read labeled it as a sequel. Okay, apparently we're gonna have to debate this <laughs> as we talk about this. So although we should I should leave with this. The interesting thing is, this was the first time for both of us watching this movie. <laughs> yeah, so okay. I've actually tried to watch this movie before. Oh, you have? I've tried many times. I've either just paused it and put in a different movie, I've fallen asleep, or I just didn't care and walked out and did other things. Ah. that's. I hope that sets the mood for my feeling. Oh, no. Well, I have gotten feedback from the Harryhausen fans in our friends group, and they have... Well, one of them anyway has given us permission to be less nice. I don't need permission. This. I know you don't need uh, need permission. You're the littlest gatekeeper. <laughs> I'll say what I want when I want. <laughs> I'll do what I want. Well, <laughs> speaking of saying what you want, what happens in this movie? Let us know so that I can layer in a karaoke track I stole from my pseudo sister. <laughs> Oh, so you want me to tell you you want to you want me to tell you the plot synopsis? Yes, that would come in handy. Okay. Long ago, in a journey, not a journey, we're not doing journey, we're doing survivor. So, long ago, in a different area of the world, one man rising up back on the street, did his time, took his chances, went the distance back on his feet now, just a man and his will to survive. So many times it happened too fast. He changed his passion for glory. He didn't lose his grip on the dreams of the past and fought to keep them alive. There is no eye of the tiger in this movie. There is nothing. But we do have a man, the myth, the legend, Sinbad, with a love interest, who also is... I, I don't... They don't really talk about her. She just kind of is there. So we have Sinbad and a girl that's just kind of there and a group of men who are just kind of there and another old man who is there who acts like the one who knows everything and has the voice not unlike God who ta- talks about everything. And there's an old lady that needs to scream in bed to... to teleport herself to to become a bird and steal the uh, some maps some maps probably to the fountain of youth 
So I'm going to I'm going to continue telling you this synopsis and, and, and I want you to stop me when you've seen this in Disney. So this heckler, this sword swinging man known as Sinbad gets on a boat and goes to the Arctic. Not to look for element X, <laughs> but to find a secret pyramid. I do that and every pyramid, other week. <laughs> and the pyramid has a special water, the fountain of youth, but not really. It just makes monkeys into men. There's also other weird creatures and giant walruses, and there's cats and dogs living together. There's mass hysteria. <laughs> and, okay, in all seriousness, there's a dude with some other dudes going to get a dude saved out of a monkey outfit. And there's a lady that doesn't want the dude out of the monkey outfit. And then... Okay, there's honest, there's so much that goes on in this movie. It's kind of hard to, like, narrow it down. It's, it's a movie about people going to save a person, and they save the person, and everybody lives happily ever after two seconds after the person's saved. The end. It came out in 1977, but it wasn't Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad I gave Jimmy the day off. He would have comments about that. <laughs> well, apparently because Star Wars came out this year, a lot of people kept like criticizing this movie because it wasn't Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so plot synopsis over with. Yeah, it 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 didn't help that it took several years to make and then it comes out the same summer as Star Wars, about 3 months afterward in August, specifically yep. August, August 12th. 12th. Yeah, August 12th. Let's be honest. This is a throwback. I think we said that about Clash of the Titans as well last year. This is a throwback to 50s and early 60s fantasy movies. It feels... <sighs> it's it's missing a lot of the core values that made it like that. Yeah, but when you compare this stylistically to a Star Wars... Yeah. Because the... There's cinema before Star Wars, and there's cinema after Star Wars. Star Wars changed everything, and this movie didn't get the memo. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and it doesn't help that it kind of seems like nobody really knew what to do about this movie. So the director, San... Want, Wanamaker? Is that how you pronounce his last name? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's what it looks like to me. Wanamaker. And it's Sam, uh, not San. I said Sam. It sounded like That sounded like an N, sir, but anyway. I said Sam. Mr. Wanamaker. But, but he was told to not, like, he, he was quite literally just told, don't touch the effects. Just work with whatever Harry yeah. Hansen does. Yeah, I I, so, I read up on that, too. That he was basically told, like, you hand, don't worry about the effects. Let Harry Hansen handle that and i think that's partially because harryhausen did the story for this movie he was also a producer on on simbad by the tiger yeah yeah but he was he was yeah it is it, it said here he worked with the producer mr schneer on a movie called the executioner and he said he wanted to have an actor's director for this you know to give the characters more dimension because he thought they'd otherwise just be cardboard cutouts 
I'm not sure how well he succeeded in that. That failed miserably. I was going to say, but here's the thing. But here's the thing. I don't know if the characters needed to have bunches of development or anything, because this is a quest movie. It's a journey movie. A lot of these characters are archetypes. You know, so really with something like this, I would just want very good actors playing these characters and we'll get into that too, because I do feel like yeah. the cast is a little bit of a mixed bag. I mean, even the producer, Mr. Schneer was not nice to this film's star. He said, oh, he looked great. And then he started talking. <laughs> then he opened his mouth. It's like what Jimmy says about you when you're not in the studio. Oh, yeah, trust me. <laughs> I'm well aware of that. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, okay, do we just kind of want to talk about the movie? Like, Yeah, yeah, let's lay, and... yeah, we'll lay some groundwork here. You know, so we've, you know, we mentioned Harry Hausen did the effects. We got the director. What are, who are some other people who worked on this? I know that's a thing you like to handle on Kaiju Conversation. So I didn't do a whole lot of research on, on the background to the people behind this. Okay, well, you have Charles um, H. Sneer, who had been working with Harryhausen for a while. I think this was the last of 10 movies they made together. Huh. From what I can remember reading. Yeah, let me well, see. Well, let me see what else he's... the. He's also worked with Sam, uh, Sam Katzman. Uh, let me see what uh, his filmography... So he, oh, he, oh, excuse me, he did... He did produce on Clash of the Titans. I was wrong about that. But he did a lot of Harryhausen's movies. Let me hmm. see. Let me see if I can find any other noteworthy ones besides Harryhausen. Most of what he's done was working with Harryhausen. Yeah. Uh, he, I don't recognize most of these other titles, honestly. Although so, Hellcats of the Navy sounds kind of amusing. <laughs> right. Yeah. It looks like he mainly just did a lot of Harryhausen's work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the screenplay. Well, it, Ray Harryhausen gets story credit, and then it was also written by Beverly Cross, who I th who also wrote Clash of the Titans, which we talked about last year. Right, and besides that, he also worked on Jason and the Argonauts. Mm -hmm. He was uncredited for, on the script for Lawrence of Arabia. So. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So you know, he he did some stuff. He did some stuff with Harryhausen, and also did some other amazing, cool work mm -hmm. Roy Buck the composer when the movie started I th felt like he was trying to channel Jerry Goldsmith for a little while and then it quickly became not Jerry Goldsmith I'm trying to see what else this guy has done he hasn't done anything really notable or what stuff like I could link towards uh, okay for a second this had me one of his previous movies I'm not kidding you is called the magnificent seven deadly sins I, I'm, a, I'm a little scared to see what that is. Oh, it's a sketch comedy movie from Britain. That makes sense. But I, looking at his filmography, I don't see a whole lot here that I recognize. Yeah. Mama Dracula. To, well, there you go. <laughs> and even when it comes to the director, he doesn't have a lot of credits when it comes to directing that you could really call back to. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, he did some Columbo TV movies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he didn't do a whole lot. And he, it's kind of uh, obvious that a lot of the people on this film didn't do a whole lot besides Harryhausen. Mm -hmm. By the um, way, the composer also did the original Get Carter, 
1971. Okay, there you go. I at least recognize that title. Yeah. And this was distributed by Columbia. This was the right. third Sinbad movie. I think that we had hinted at that already. Columbia but, released a lot of Harryhausen's movies after. Yes, after Columbia Sinbad. did all of Harryhausen's movies besides The Animal World, Valley of Guanji, Clash of the Titans, and One Million Years BC. Those are the only ones that oh, Columbia did. These from 20,000 Fathoms. That was oh, one yeah, of them. And Beast. Yeah. And Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Yeah. Everything else was Columbia. And I think and, and I think Warner Brothers didn't Warner No, that was it was still RKO. Yeah. Mighty Joe Young, if you want to count that. If you want to count it. I do. It's that's a gray area. <laughs> it's a little bit of a gray um, area. I get it. But yeah, so people behind the camera other than Ray can't say that I necessarily recognize a lot of them, uh, other than, you know, Mr. Schneer, who's been, you know, who basically produced everything that Ray Harryhausen did. The cast, on the other hand, I know some of these people. <laughs> I know some of these people quite well. So Sinbad, first and foremost, is played by Patrick Wayne, the son of John Wayne. <laughs> huh. Yeah, one of uh, I think they said he's the second son of John Wayne. I, I don't know that much about John Wayne to really comment on that. How do you, the cinephile, not know a whole lot about John Wayne? I, I don't. I don't watch a lot of American cinema. That's unfortunate if, for if you. If I'm going to be perfectly honest, uh, that's um, yeah. Like I said, that's unfortunate for you. And Jane Seymour as the as Princess Farah. First off, she is an incredibly beautiful woman. She is still an incredibly beautiful woman. I have rarely seen someone age as gracefully as she has. And she went on to do a lot of different stuff, like Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and stuff on TV. At she this, did. Hmm? She was on a Battlestar Galactica. She was on well. Battlestar Galactica. And at this point, when she got this part, because it took them a long time to make this movie, like pre-production started in 1974. Mm-hmm. And then production started with the actors in 1975. And then it took them until 1977 to release it. <laughs> so when, I'm guessing when she got the part, she was still riding high on making her major film debut as a Bond girl. She was solitaire in Live and Let Die. One of the first... I th Actually, I think that was the first Roger Moore James Bond movie. Huh. And I've seen I've seen her in that, and she was pretty good. And then we had Patrick Troughton. Patrick Troughton. Oh, I know Patrick Troughton as Melanthius. Patrick Troughton. Patrick Troughton famously was the second doctor in Doctor Who. And when I saw his name in the credits, not knowing he was in it, I'm like, oh, man, I can't wait to see this guy. And... I knew immediately it was him, despite the fact that he's wearing Gandalf levels of hair and beard. Right. Because <laughs> those doctor mannerisms come just beam right through all that hair. It is undeniably him. And so that actually made me pretty happy seeing him in this. And uh, apparently Taryn Power is a bit of a big deal. I'm I, I, She has a cool sounding name. I'll say that much, but... I don't rec... Oh, she was in The Count of Monte Cristo in 1975. Okay, so... Trying to see what else she was in. House of Pleasure for Women. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, I don't recognize most of the rest of her filmography, I'm going to be honest here. 
Yeah. But I did collect some facts here about about our actors. So what's interesting is, you know, since we're going backwards here, the fact that we have Jane Seymour in here, she was the second Bond girl to be in this. Because mm-hmm. Carolyn Monroe, who famously was in one of Travis's, uh, Travis, our friend Travis Alexander's, one of his favorite bad movies, <laughs> Star Crash. I've never seen Star Crash. Yeah. You probably find it amusing, actually. It's an Italian Star Wars. I, I feel knockoff. like I'd enjoy it. Yeah. I feel like I would but, enjoy it. Yeah. But she was, yeah, she was in The Spy Who Loved Me, 1977. And Tom Baker, who was the fourth Doctor, was in Golden Voyage of Sinbad. But he was in Golden Voyage before he was on Doctor Who. Oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. And Patrick Troughton was Phineas the Blind Man in Jason and the Argonauts. Right. Mm -hmm. And apparently, Patrick Wayne's father, John Wayne, was in a movie with Taron Power's grandfather, who was named Tyrone Power. And we're not we we haven't brought up who played the golden minotaur. Whenever it was the men in suit, Peter Mayhew. Peter Mayhew, who, who was Chewbacca in Star yep. Wars. Yep, and he got the part because he was working at a hospital, and Mister Schneer saw him, saw him in a photo, and saw how tall he was, and just went and asked him to be in the movie. So this is his screen debut. But he's only in a few shots when they couldn't in some backgrounds when it would have been difficult to animate the miniature. No, not the right. the armature, the puppet. Which I thought was a weird idea. Like, why? And I, I, I don't understand the thought process behind that. Why would you build a suit and then also build the miniature to use the stop motion when you could just have him be man in suit? Well, I didn't understand pr- that. Well, probably because they f- might have figured that it would work better with some shots than others. Or maybe it was just Ray Harryhausen just being like, I'm the stop motion master. I don't like suit motion because I can't get a straight answer. I've heard that he didn't like Eiji Tsuburaya and the Japanese stuff, but I've also heard him in an interview be very positive toward the quote unquote Japanese stuff. So I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe he softened in his old age. I'm not sure. But here's the other thing. Patrick Wayne was not the first choice to play Sinbad in this. John Philip Law played Sinbad in Golden Voyage, but they wanted to avoid the quote-unquote stigma of a sequel rather than this just being its own movie. Hmm. So they considered some other actors, including Michael York, who had played D'Artagnan in The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers, and Timothy Dalton, who went on to become James Bond, and even Michael Douglas. I would have liked it if Michael Douglas was, was Sinbad. Michael Douglas' Sinbad would have been interesting. I'm surprised I haven't heard a bunch of people when they look at these old fantasy epics like this and complain about how it's a bunch of white actors playing, quote-unquote, Arabs. Because if Mm -hmm. you look, and I need to look into it a bit more. I was going to for this episode, but when I quickly realized that this Sinbad movie has a lot more Greek stuff in it than actual, we'll say, Middle Eastern Story elements are like, I think I'll wait until later. But Sinbad is a hero from 1001 Arabian Nights. And he famously went on seven voyages. 
I found a place where you can actually read those the actual stories of the seven voyages online. I will read those, and then I think maybe in a future episode on Sinbad, I will share some more on that. As it stands, I was focusing more on the Greek stuff that's in here. But, yeah, so he's supposed to be an Arab character, and I'm surprised no one complains about it. There's also a joke in here that I'm a little afraid if people find it, they're going to try to cancel the movie. And that's after the walrus attack. Because oh. one, one of the crew members yeah. is a big black man, and he was like, oh, man, we've, you know, we beat the monster. And then his crewmate, who's white, or at least played by a white actor, says, I said something about how he'd never seen a black man turn white. Yeah. Now, he was referring to going pale because from fear, but I'm sure that that's good for the people now. And I mean... <laughs> Ghostbusters actually does something similar to that when Winston's in the mayor's office and says, I have seen stuff that will turn you white. Yep. And there, there's a unspoken reaction that the camera cuts to of mm-hmm. like, Oh yes. I remember there. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Frankly, I don't care. I think it's funny. <laughs> if you look at it in context, the absurdity of it makes it very funny. Potentially. So, yeah. So I, 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 I'm not. I, uh, so do we kind of want to? Is there any more housekeeping you want to do on establishing one more? The- one more. Okay. Our villainous Zenobia. She was originally going to be played by Betty Davis, but she wanted too much money. Yeah, I. So the film actually had a budget. It, there's conflicting reports, but it's between three and three point five million dollars. I saw three point five, which is about. It's a little three point five. Which should be around about $20 million now. It made a box office of $20 million. So it made its money back eight times over, mm-hmm. which is which is remarkable. But even then, Harryhausen brought up that the film was definitely rushed mm-hmm. when it comes to its, its production. Mm-hmm. He said and this was I, the least satisfying out of all the Sinbad movies for him personally. Right, and I definitely have a lot of opinions on that. If yeah. you want to kind of walk into the movie yeah. here yeah. now, and- yeah, we will. Just uh, just one more thing about Zenobia. So the actress they went with was Margaret Whiting, mm-hmm. and when they filmed it, she didn't have an accent. Then the producer decided that Zenobia would would be more interesting if she had a weird accent. So when they did the ADR, re-recorded the dialogue. She redid all of her lines with a weird accent. The ADR in this movie is awful. It, it threw me off. When I first it's started awful. watching it, I was like, for a second, I was like, did I accidentally get a foreign language copy for the film vault? Because <laughs> this no, ADR sounds a little weird. <laughs> so Sinbad, the, the, all the lines for Sinbad are clearly ADR. Yeah. They are very, very clear. It's not like they're on, like, in the scene or anything. And so his audio is, like, it it trumps everything else in the movie. And it drove me nuts. Mm -hmm. The post-production on this film is where I feel like it's most rushed. The ADR is lacking Mm -hmm. in every department. I know that in Japanese productions for a really long time, they put a greater emphasis on catching the audio when they're Mm -hmm. actually filming. So it was also practice, especially in like Italian films, to film in silence 
and then go back and add the audio in later. Mm-hmm. I mean, an example of that would be uh, Yeti Giant of the 20th Century. Oh, no. And in, <laughs> in that movie, there's a dog that is ADR'd. Oh, my God. They dubbed the dog. I remember. Oh, my gosh. I'm, and the reason, I'm PTSDing the re- about that right now, man. Oh, man. The, the reason for that is because that's how Italian films were made. That's mm. how they were made. They were all ADR'd. Nowadays, film tries to capture it on scene, on mm-hmm. set, but... As an example of a most recent blockbuster, the Deadpool films, mm-hmm. with the most recent writer's strike that's going on right now in Hollywood, Ryan Reynolds cannot alter the script. Like, that would that would break contracts, and, and there would be fines, and there would be problems. So he has to follow the script to a T. But once the strike is over, and they're in the post-production phase on Deadpool 3... Ryan Reynolds can just do whatever he wants in ADR. He can improvise all he wants. Mm -hmm. So ADR is still used today, but it's the emphasis is mostly on getting it in the soundstage because now we have technology that like picks up that audio Mm -hmm. and we have stuff that's, that's made to pick up that audio Mm -hmm. raw, like on the camera. Mm -hmm. I know that there was a time frame and there were certain filmmakers who, even if they caught the audio on the set, they would just go back and, and do the and ADR everything. Like the actors have to come back and they have to do all of that, even if their lines could clearly be heard on right. the set. Like I know George Lucas famously did that on all the Star Wars movies. Like they would, everyone said their lines on set, but then they would have the actors have to go back and do the lines again in the right. ADR. I know, I think it was Hugh Jackman. They tried to make it so Hugh Jackman didn't do a lot of ADR when he did his Wolverine movies because the cost to get like Hugh Jackman to travel to the studio, to rent the studio, to to use the studio, have him record those lines and leave would add an extra few million dollars to Mm -hmm. the budget, which stuff like that's the reason now they try to get audio like straight from the film. Mm -hmm from shooting because they, they don't want to rack up that budget. Right. Uh, something similar happened with this movie because they, there's a lot of location filmmaking in this, which mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm not going to complain about that. Like we're going to criticize this movie a fair amount, but the filming locations are wonderful. Yes. Yes. That was something positive. I wrote in my notes was uh, especially towards the end of the film when they're mm-hmm. like in the big field areas. Mm-hmm. It's, Hyperborea. It's, it's beautiful. It's it is very beautiful. Yeah, the, they filmed in a villa and Manzanares in Spain, and then they had to move it to Malta, and that was due to cost. But one of the things that they had to do to save money is, you know, when they had to do some big establishing shots, they did not fly the cast out to film those on location. They actually had extras who would wear the appropriate costumes, and they would do long shots. To do the establishment, which explains why I, I felt like there was a lot of green screening in this movie. <laughs> well, it wasn't green screen. It wasn't green screen, but there's a lot of composite composites. Shots. That's what I'm looking for. So in a stop motion film, compositing is required. You have to composite. Now you would green screen it. Yes, but you would you would have to composite the layer of the stop motion onto the layer of the real actors. 
So as you're as you're doing that composite, you have to cut out one of the two, either your stop motion maquettes or your actors. And in this movie, they choose the actors a lot. They do. And the actors, uh, there's clipping. I can I can get behind some clipping. So clipping is when your composites aren't perfect. So the edges of the subject start to move or mm-hmm. flicker or cut or just disappear entirely like a green screen mess up. And that happens frequently with all of the actors when it comes to their composites with the stop motion armatures or the on location shooting or just like the, the filming in general, there's a few sequences. If I remember correctly, that they, they composited the actors in and they didn't have to, but they did. And it it just, it looks off and it doesn't help that. I'm pretty sure there's some day for night shots in here as well. Mm -hmm. That, don't help when it comes to stuff like that. It's like a green screen. When when you edit green screen footage too much, eventually it just looks bad. It just, it just looks awful. You have to know where to stop with stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of this film, they don't really stop with it, which leads to a lot of really bad shots, which hurts because like, Harryhausen does great work. His 50s and 60s films are amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and those use compositing. But it's obvious they had more time in post-production to composite in the 50s and 60s than this film did because this film just falls apart with its composites and its, yeah. its special effects. Yeah. It's, all, the, all the special techniques in this film just fall apart. It's Mm -hmm. obvious they were rushing it. It's obvious they didn't have a budget to do it with. Mm -hmm. And they they also had to cut some sequences out. Like, there was originally going to be a fight between Minotan, the portmanteau of a minotaur and an automaton, get it, and Trog. You know, the two main stop-motion characters were going to have a big brawl. And... When I read about that, I'm like, well, that explains so much because I felt like there was all of this setup with Minotan, you know? Really? But Well, yeah, I was expecting Minotan to do something cool at the end of the movie, and then he does it. Honestly, I was, when, when Minotan died, I was like, or died in air quotes, I guess. Yeah, when he gets crushed. I was, I was like, this makes sense. Yeah, this is well, definitely how I saw it. Well, no, I was expecting him to get into a fight with somebody by the end because for most of the movie, he rows, row, 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 row your boat. That's all he does. He kills one guy who's in the water by skewering him with a lance. And he has a pretty cool, shall we say, birth scene. But then after that, all he does is row the boat. Yeah, I expected him to die from the get-go. and the I mean, I did, died, too, because he's the minion well, of the villain. Yeah, but, like, the way he died was exactly how I saw it. When he was grabbing that stone brick mm-hmm. and he was going back and forth, I was like, he's going to walk it off and he's going to be an idiot and he's going to fall yeah. and he's going to get crushed. And that's what happened. And I was yeah. like, oh, well, there he goes. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I would have... I would have preferred that that not happen. Every single creature in this movie gets trashed. 
There is not a memorable. I mean, even I mean the, even, the, the, the Trog fighting the saber tooth tigers, pretty cool. And then Sinbad fighting the tiger. That whole sequence is probably the best one in terms of the Trog stop motion. It's probably the best one. Trog just disappears. Like his his corpse quite literally just disappears from right. the entire scene. Right. Um, Although Harry Hosen put a lot of care into that Trog puppet. It's very it's very detailed. And he did that yes. on purpose because he knew it was going to be used for a lot of close-ups. So all of the creatures in this were made to be more realistic. Mm-hmm. Like the walrus was originally supposed to be a Yeti. Yeah, it was supposed to be um, a Yeti. I also read that it was going to be a mammoth at one point. <laughs> so they went through a couple different ideas. Honestly, a Yeti would have made a little bit more sense. Although I am happy to see that Magma got some like, oh, got some work after Gorath. <laughs> right. I, I was I was curious who was going to make that joke first. Yeah, yeah. Because I, mean, I one of the things I'm glad I didn't do is I didn't watch the trailer for this movie. I just went Likewise. straight into it because if I had watched the trailer, it would have given every single thing away. I would have known every single creature that's coming. The story in this is not as important. Like I said, it's a simple story with archetypal characters. It's a quest story. Well, the, it it just boils down to Sinbad's in love with the princess. The princess's brother is a caliph. He has to give the blessing for the wedding. Oh wait, he's been turned into a baboon but by an evil witch. So now we got to figure out how to turn him back to human so that Sinbad can well, I mean, yeah, they'll help the kingdom out by doing that because you know, a good you know, we want a good caliph and we don't want the the evil stepmother. This is it's very fairy taleish because the evil stepmother is also a sorceress, so you know he can keep her in check. You know, so that's good. That's that's good too. But Simba's motivation is I need the blessing to marry the girl. So, <laughs> so I cannot express how bored I was through this entire movie. This movie is almost, it's eight minutes shy of two hours long. Mm-hmm. And it should have been cut by like 30 to 40 minutes. I do think it, you know, if it was 30 minutes shorter, I don't know. I don't think I would have missed a whole lot. A lot of what this movie is, is spectacle. It Now it has the, it very much has that quest set up because they say, okay, here's the set. Here's what we need to do to do this. All right. We need, so it's, oh, go talk to Melanthius, the doctor. <laughs> go talk to the doctor because he'll be able to turn the prince uh, back to human. He said, and then they go there. And then he says, well, I can't really do that, but I know where we can go to do that. So now we have to go to Hyperborea. And then we got to get to a temple in Hyperborea. So the plot's pretty simple. It's just there are all these obstacles in the way that they have to deal with. Now, I will say this. Up until meeting the... Well, well and, the, and the villains are chasing after them, too, because they're trying to and get And that was first. boring. Honestly, the, the whole chasing aspect was really boring. I, I did not like that. Yeah. Um, Honestly, I didn't feel like Zenobia was... She started off strong by summoning the ghouls and stuff, which we'll talk about. But about an hour into the movie, I was having a hard time taking her seriously as a threat. When she orgasms and transforms herself <laughs> into into Simbad's boat, that's when I no longer cared for her. <laughs> That's 
Well, we're not. You don't want to talk about when she gets put into a jar and basically interrogated and made to look well, kind well, of pathetic. When, when when she does that, like following that, her character just is up. It, it, it no longer has yep. weight. Well, she. It, it, well, and then there was the the part where because she, she has this magic potion that she used to transform, and then she needs it to transform back, and then she freaks out because she's there wasn't enough there wasn't enough because she turned into a seagull and one of her feet still is still a seagull foot she freaks out about it in one scene we see it again in one more scene after that and then other than seeing her walk with a slight limp for the rest of the movie it's never brought up again yep and like that sequence too like that i feel like kind of knocked off a few points on on her and how of good of a villain she could have been yeah well and, and then we don't even know how she got into the position of power that she's in she, we they're, don't. Ju- they're just operating under the fairy tale logic of somehow she got herself here because she's a manipulative witch but we don't know if she used her powers to do it or if she be- she became evil later or something like that we just know she's the evil stepmother and right. she cursed her stepson, the Caliph, Farah's brother, and now she's doing everything she can to make sure he doesn't get turned back to human. Right. It's very mundane. Mm-hmm. Her her story especially is mundane. Another character, her opposite, Melanthius, his character I feel like was built up and then quickly just kind of devalued especially in the sequence where he's interrogating her because he gives the bee the formula and then the bee grows and it's like, what were you expecting? And he even says, like in the script, they have it saying that he underestimated. But following that, you're like, does he, I thought he's supposed to be like the expert in this. Why is he not like, why why doesn't he know what he's doing? Well, and he's a little bit weird to a certain extent. With a name like that, Melanthius, he's clearly Greek. Like I said, there's a lot of Greek stuff. Well, they, in this. yeah, they even say he is Greek in the movie. Yeah, he, they flat out say he is Greek. And so it's weird that we have this Arabic hero hanging out with a Greek guy and then hanging out with a bunch of Greek mythological characters. So we're kind of blending the two here. I know for what I read that. Ray Harryhausen was very fond of Sinbad. In fact, he actually credited Sinbad with marking a turning point for him in his career because in the early 50s, not not early 50s, in the mid-50s, he was doing concept sketches for skeletons, and he just used Sinbad in this because he thought Sinbad would be a great hero to use in that. Now, that later on became, I'm guessing, Jason and the Argonauts. Jason, yep. Yeah. So it, it ended up being Greek. So you can definitely tell that Harryhausen is familiar with the Sinbad stories from 1001 Arabian Nights, but he is mired in Greek mythology. Like, he knows Greek mythology very well. A lot of his fantasy movies revolve around Greek mythology. Right. It's and But I also kind of like the fact that in this Sinbad movie, it's very Greek-inspired because this is the in-between film between the golden voyage of Sinbad mm-hmm. and... Clash of the Titans, Titans, yeah. So this is kind of, to me, it's almost like it's the blending. Yeah, for to, sure. To Clash of the Titans. But his character, Melanthius' character, 
is built up. Like mm-hmm. he is the the first checkpoint. Yeah, he's the first checkpoint. See him. Yeah, but he's kind of weird. He's a he's quote unquote a scientist, which seems a little bit of an odd thing to be. I mean, maybe I'm taking this a little too seriously because, but this is supposed to be the ancient world, right? To right. a certain extent. Well, and, there, you know, so, but he's a, a scientist, but he also calls himself an alchemist, which is also kind of weird. There's a lot of stuff that they, that the writers put that doesn't make sense because it's supposed to take place in, in like the ancient world. I'm and guessing talking. Well, I'm not sure exactly when it's supposed to take place. We have Islam is firmly established in Arabia there. But Islam didn't come about until the 16th, until not 16, the six, until about 600 AD. So this would have to have been at least a couple, at least a hundred or so years after that. But we've got a lot of Greek stuff here too. So, you know, this, how do these, you know, these two very different empires, how can they coexist? But, you know, eventually you just say like, doesn't really matter. This is myth, not history. (laughs) To quote the worst filmmaker of all time. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> oh, wow. You got to uh, scratch that off your bingo card, people. He took his shot. <laughs> yep. There's got to be a few things when there are kaiju conversation episodes, and there's my Adam Wingard. And there's your Adam Wingard comment. Yep. But, yeah. So the one thing I will say about Melanthius is I wonder if he was intended to be a foil to Zenobia. Because Zenobia is very much about magic and the supernatural, and he's right. supposed to be more scientific. He still believes well, but, in the he still believes in the Greek gods, but he's more scientifically minded. But doesn't he also know magic? Like he's the only one that understands magic. He understands it, but well, but I, but he also said he's an alchemist. Alchemy is alchemy is odd. Every time I try to look up stuff about alchemy, it's it seems like it's a little hard to pin down. Alchemy seems like a weird blending of both science and magic to me. So maybe that was what they were trying to get us. So he can understand how it works, but I wouldn't necessarily call him a magician. That's fair to me. His character. I wanted to like his character. I wanted to, I I was hoping that he would end up being my favorite character. He's probably my favorite actor in this. I mean, he's the best actor in this. You can tell just by how he talks. Like mm-hmm. he, he's he's clearly having fun with this character. Mm-hmm. But the 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 writing for these characters, the writing for this story, the plot is awful. This is a very boring and dumb plot. Like the it's other, a, I don't know if "dumb" is the right word. I would say it's very simple. You, you want to say something about that? I can tell you want to. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's incredibly simple. You could even simplistic. say it's very basic. It is basic. Mm-hmm. It's like the plot that goes to Starbucks and just orders a plain black coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know how you feel about your Starbucks. <laughs> I like Starbucks, but I don't order a plain black coffee. <laughs> so no, Because you are I, not the eye of the tiger. I get it. <laughs> Uh, okay, speaking of Eye of the Tiger, another issue with this plot, there is no Eye of a Tiger. It's supposed to be Zenobia. It's pretty subtle until you get the, to the end when she just turns into a saber-toothed tiger. I honestly thought, I, I, will, I will admit, when I'm going into this, I thought, okay, Simbad's going to be looking for a treasure, and it's called the Eye of the Tiger. 
it's the Indiana Jones thing. It's Indiana Jones and whatever the thing is he's looking for. You know, right? No, that's what I thought too. So the fact that there was no plot MacGuffin that was known as the Eye of the Tiger, and like that, that would have worked. Yeah, like they have to go to Hyperborea and find a MacGuffin called the Eye of the Tiger to make the Caliph, the Prince, human again. Yes. That would have been fine. That would have worked. Mm-hmm. But no, we don't get that. Instead, it's I guess it's supposed to be. I mean, I mean, it's a cool sounding. Even, it's a cool sounding title that lets us make classic rock references. But <laughs> she doesn't even transform into a tiger. She just turns into smoke, and and the the saber tooth tiger that was already there just comes alive. Well, did you know? Do you know what the working titles were for this? So, okay, actually, I wanted to talk about this because there was one called Sinbad at World's End. Yes, Sinbad at World's End, the other working titles very early on. And Ray Harryhausen was using Sinbad in Hyperborea, and then they considered Sinbad Beyond the North Wind. Which actually that one does, works. That one actually sounds pretty cool, I gotta be honest. So, Sinbad at World's End. When I read that, I was like, wait a minute. And then I realized something. So, Sinbad, a sword swinging, uh, charismatic, usually <laughs> sailor that loves the ocean, goes to the Arctic in search of a magical place to bring somebody back in human form. That's the plot of Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. I was going to say, are you trying to say Gore Verbinski saw this movie? Well, Jack Sparrow, wouldn't you say Jack Sparrow could be the modern Sinbad? I, going on They're too really, of, he's much more of a scoundrel than Sinbad is. I mean, but, but Jack Sparrow also can be charismatic when he wants to. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm still saying he's still a scoundrel. Doesn't mean you can't right. be a charismatic scoundrel. Hello, Han Solo. <laughs> But like, I, I kind of, when, when I was thinking about that, I was like, wait a minute. It, it kind of feels like that because the story of Jack Sparrow is him sailing the seas. Mm-hmm. And in Eye of the Tiger, they're looking for this water to bring somebody back. Mm-hmm. And in, in a later entry in the Pirates, mm-hmm. in the Pirates franchise, they're looking for the Fountain of Youth mm-hmm. on some charts that they have. And magic and science is something that fights back and forth in the Pirates movies mm-hmm. that we see here in, in mm-hmm. Eye of the Tiger. Mm-hmm. So I just, I don't know, maybe it was coincidental, but I definitely was like, hmm, I could definitely see some Simbad influence in, in the Pirates. Well, I mean, there's there's creatures, mm-hmm. mythical creatures. The Pirates of the Caribbean movies seem like something that Ray Harryhausen would have loved to do. Yes, they really I do. Wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah, they're they're cut from the same cloth, but obviously done with the, you know, an overabundance of CGI. But <laughs> but it looks good. Yeah, I will defend the first three with with a passion. Those first three. Look I will defend the first one for sure. I will be a little. I'm less kind to the second two, and then the uh, the ones after that are just like, huh? Oh, yeah, four and five are, are yeah, no. We, I was those like, huh? Just... What were you guys trying to do there? That's just weird. Anyway, <laughs> I so, yeah, so it's kind of law of diminishing returns for me there, but, you know, but it, I'm not saying that movies two and three don't have their merits. They do. Right. I mean, good Lord, look at what, look at what they accomplished 
just in terms of special effects with Davy Jones. I mean, Dave that Jones. was yeah, that was incredible. What he they still did. looks amazing. He, he still looks does. better than he looks better than all the Marvel and DC movies in the last like five years. Ooh, I mean, I bet Harry. Can you imagine Harryhausen doing like a stop motion Davy Jones? Oh, that would have been cool. It would have been, been, really cool. been really cool. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, but like I said, definitely cut from the same cloth. But here's the thing, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, you know what if Harry Housen could have enjoyed, you know, making pirates movies, they actually considered doing, I should mention this, they actually considered doing other things besides another Sinbad. They made another Sinbad because Golden Voyage did well. And the studio yes, asked Golden them, uh, Columbia well. asked them to do it again. But they kicked around doing completely, not completely different things, but different things. And some, and like all of these I would have loved to see Harry Hasn't try his hand at. They also thought about doing The Hobbit, the J.R.R. Tolkien book. I'm like, oh man, Ray Harryhausen doing an adaptation of The Hobbit? That would have been amazing with the trolls and the spiders <laughs> and all all of that. That would have been great. But then they also thought about doing Conan. You imagine Ray Harryhausen doing Conan? That would have been interesting. That would have been interesting. I don't know who they would have had for Conan. You wouldn't have had Arnold. That would have been the one thing that would be missing would be Arnold. I agree with that one. So I, I, I'm not sure. That one I'm a little less certain about, but Ray Harryhausen doing the effects for a Conan movie would have been really cool. And they also thought about doing Food of the Gods, the H.G. Wells book. I feel like they were talking about doing Food of the Gods for a while. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was one that like got thrown around every few years for Harryhausen. Right. Right. But what about the other characters? We got we got we got our token girls in this. And I will tell you, I feel like was it Dion? After a while I was questioning why she was still there. She starts off really cool. Like when when they first meet her, when they go to the city where Melanthius is, because she's Melanthius's daughter, right? And so when they first meet her, she's very commanding. Like she can boss all of the, you know, all the people in the city around, and they obey her. And they find out she's telepathic because she has telepathia, communication of the mind. You know, she has to define it for everybody. We're so used to knowing what telepathy is now that the fact that there's a movie that has to briefly explain it is novel to be honest and also a little weird but then after that very strong introduction after she takes them to our heroes to see her father her role isn't quite as important after that other than taking care of prince baboon right and you know and then cueing us in that Ray Harryhausen loves King Kong because there's some very King Kong moments with between the baboon and both of the ladies. Right. No, I agree. I feel like Dion and Thera, both of them kind of, their entries are important to the, the story. Their entries are important. They help mm-hmm. move the story. But after that initial introduction, they do become these characters that are just either the damsels in distress when Thorg is first introduced or just the side characters, like the three crewmates that follow, is it three or is it two? Uh, two. I think it's mostly three. I want to say the three crewmates that Simbad has, like they just become these background characters that are just walking with them. Mm -hmm. Bit of cannon fodder. 
Yes, and it. it, it I except I they're love... more important. They're more important than cannon fodder. I will say that they're also eye candy. Let's not beat around the bush here. That sounded awful in context. Anyway, <laughs> that's not what I meant. <laughs> it's not what I meant. They're eye candy, especially Farah, because I think Farah is supposed to be a little bit older than Dion and wears shall we say more flattering costumes <laughs> but both of them have scenes where i sit there going wow g ratings were really different in the 70s <laughs> like this whole movie has full of stuff that makes me question the mpaa uh, well it's the mpa now but regardless of the mpaa back then this has a g rating and this is a movie with near nudity like about as close to new as to not having nudity it's, as you can get. It's Jaws level nudity. Yeah. And also Yeah, but Jaws is still PG. And also a fair amount of violence. I'm like, no, how I, did this not get a PG rating? I I don't I feel like the violence is pretty tame to be honest. I don't I mean you know, people are getting stabbed and and, but, and 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 they're bleeding all over the place and the monsters are bleeding all over the place I mean So the monsters you don't you can't really acknowledge because the MPA would never put uh, an R rating because of monsters I'm not bleeding. saying R rating I was expecting a PG rating or or anything they're not going to monsters bleeding the MPA doesn't typically point people for but like the I will say there's some moments in it where I was like oh there's blood that's weird Definitely yeah. wasn't expecting to see that. Specifically when our villain character, when she tells the Minotone to ram that spy boat and there's all that blood that is on the boat wreck remains. Stuff like that I was a little shocked by. Yeah, but the it was the near nudity that really threw me off. I'm like, I can't believe you well, got away with that i can't believe you got away with that in fact i actually found a bit of trivia that related specifically to that because gene seymour originally didn't want to do it there's there's a, a skinny dipping and sunbathing scene in this movie with dion and farah right and she originally didn't want to do it but he eventually convinced her to do it but she only would do it if all the crew who had to be there were behind the trees so as Schneer put it, nobody could see her except the camera and the world. Schneer did actually say this is the only fully nude ba- sunbathing sequence ever in a G-rated film. <laughs> I mean, fair. <laughs> well, there, there was also a scene, and I think it was when dinosaurs ruled the Earth where there's a female who has no top on. I was going to say, it, that, I remember hearing something about, like, there's actual flat-out G-rated nudity in a movie. Yes. Like, actual, like, this is really close. You don't quite get it. It goes right get, about as far as you side, can you go. You get some side stuff. You get some side, and that's about it. But there, everyone always has either a well-placed camera or well-placed hair to avoid it. But I, do, I think it is where, when Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth where there's flat-out nudity. It's in a there, G-rated movie. A, Although, the original Planet of the Apes has very quick rear nudity in it, and it's also rated G. Well, King Kong Lives has a blink-and-you'll-miss nip slip by Linda But Hamilton. that's PG-13, though. <laughs> no, is it PG-13? It's, it's PG-13. Okay. It was PG-13, sir. I mean, that <laughs> although that's be R most, Although that's that, mostly but... because King Kong is eating rednecks. 
but <laughs> I still wonder why John LeMay on ironically loves that movie. <laughs> People are, have weird, weird in, interests. Yeah, they do. But so those those were those were some things that I had to get used to. So, like I said, they're there for eye candy. Their initial roles are pretty important, but after that. They really are much less important, which is too bad. It really is too bad. I guess Farah right. is supposed to be there because it's her brother that they're trying to help. And I give but them that's, credit. That's I give them credit. This is the 70s, even though this feels very much like a 50s or a 60s movie. I give them credit. They don't just leave the women behind. They let the right. women come along on the adventure. Because initially they weren't going to, but, but then... Somehow she, Farah did get, was able to come along. But I also like, so the part in this movie where I say I'm done, the part where I would definitely, I kept checking because I was like, oh my God, it's only been four minutes since I last checked, was the scene after they went to get Melanthius and they're on the boat traveling to the Arctic. That whole thing, the bee, the... When, when, uh, when Zenobia is tiny and they try and they do do that, some, I, and, that I have to say I think when they composite yeah. her and, and do the miniature stuff I was actually pretty it's, impressed it's with good. that yeah yes. that was good the plot point for it is a little weird yes and the whole thing about what I'm, I'm getting at here is this whole part of the film because after they disappear they still talk and they're still on the boat and before that, they're talking and on the boat. And I am so bored of listening to these characters talk because they're not developing. All of the characters are interacting, but there's not really a lot there that is piquing my interest. Mm -hmm. I just want to get to the the, the stop motion. Like, mm -hmm. I, I eventually gets to the point where that's just all I'm thinking is, Where's the stop motion? I will confess there. I eventually got to the point where I'm like, I wasn't com turning completely against the movie, but I was finding myself thinking, can we get to the stop motion? The characters are not that uh, aren't necessarily the most interesting. Farrah is nice to look at, but that's kind of where it ends. You know, I, I care about them accomplishing their mission, you know, but I'm, I don't even care about that. Like I, I was so bored. There's a reason that when I tried to watch this movie before I fell asleep, when I fall yeah. asleep during a movie, that's a bad sign. That shows that there's something wrong with that movie. Right. So who's the best actor in this movie? The walrus, the trog, the, the baboon. <laughs> so I love the walrus scene. The walrus scene is really, the really walrus good. scene is wild because I wasn't expecting it. I thought that was really good. I love the walrus scene. I, I think that's Harryhausen's peak stop motion and like peak like work in this. I do know that the walrus, from what I read, the walrus was difficult. Yes, but I also read so the saber tooth tiger, which the tiger I, was difficult too. Yeah. Yes, and the reason why was he didn't want to do what Willis O'Brien did in Thirty Three's King Kong and have the fur move with him moving the. And yet, I still see the fur moving. You do, but it's not it's not as much as in King Kong. If you actually look, I feel like the baboon 
the baboon's moves, hair is moving a lot. It moves a lot more than the saber-toothed tiger. The saber-toothed mm-hmm. tiger's hair does not move nearly as much. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I see here that the walrus was difficult to animate because it was really thick. It had a lot of latex rubber on it. And it Ooh. made it difficult to move the armature, especially in yeah. the middle. Speaking of King Kong real quick, did you know that the gateway to... Yep, inspired by King Kong. As soon as I saw it, I'm King like, uh, as soon as I saw it, like, Harryhausen, you're paying tribute to Obi, aren't you? And he was. <laughs> he was. He was. He also made the power source for the temple. That's actually a bunch of dental floss. <laughs> oh, really? Made, it's made of dental floss. <laughs> You want to talk about you know, improvising. It says, quote, Harryhausen and crew mounted dozens of floss fiber strands around a cylinder-like construction made of gauze, and this was mounted on a revolving mechanism and put in front of black velvet. It was then pulled out of focus to create shimmering, and an inky light was run up and down the system to give it reflections. And what 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 effect was this for? Oh, for the power source in the temple. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. I thought they would just do like cell color, mm. like color on the cells of the film. Yeah. But anyway, so, so. Trog, Walrus, Baboon. <laughs> well, those are the three. I would say the main. Well, and Miniton. Like those four are the main stop motion characters that were get. Well, that are in there the most frequently we had the ghouls at the beginning the the zomboids they were going to be called i like them but i've seen this i've seen jason and the argonauts they were just echoing the skeletons again although these did look freaky because they still had flesh on them because they were inspired by anatomy pictures and they had horns and common rider eyes Well, the 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 heads reminded me of the Martians from First Men into. The- yep, that's where a lot of the inspiration came from, and Harryhausen said that bug eyes and horns were a classic technique that he would use to make something look evil. Speaking of Trog and influences, you know he reused that maquette for Calabos. Oh, that right? makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I also know that Trog was originally going to be a Neanderthal. Yes, yes, he was. He was supposed to look a little more humanoid. Yeah, yeah. But And troglodytes are a Greek thing. I did look that up, and they did live up in the north, according to Greek mythology. So again, one of many, many, many Greek things that are in this. Right. Now, now I think I will... they were more just, just plain old giants. They didn't, now, the horn, I think, is a Harryhausen invention. Yeah. I will say, I thought... On Trog's introduction, you know, everybody's scared. And it's said to stop moving, like, don't make sudden movements, which is fine. Like, Jurassic Park took that line later, but they don't stop moving. Nope. They actually, they, they just keep moving. And I'm like, did they not just, the person who said stop moving is still moving. I'm like, mm-hmm. what are we doing here? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was going to be, it originally it was going to be Neanderthal. But Harry hasn't thought that wasn't unusual or dramatic enough. And they were also thinking about having Trog be an actor in heavy makeup. Ooh, that would have been... Yeah, but Harry hasn't said no, because the animation will give it a quote-unquote strange quality. 
And speaking of that, while I was watching the Ray Harryhausen documentary segment on Golden or Eye of the Tiger, they talked extensively about how CGI and stop motion are. And mm-hmm. even like and in, in, in this documentary, they have like Phil Tippett, Baker, mm-hmm. Rick Baker, Rick Baker, people that worked at ILM. James Cameron, everybody, they're interviewing a lot of people on special effects. And a lot of people brought up how stop motion doesn't, it's not realistic. Like it doesn't look real, but it gives it a level of fantasy that just works. Mm -hmm. It's an art. It's an art form. Whereas CGI is something different. So the interviewer, I want to say, was one of the ILM technicians. He didn't want to say it was art, but he didn't want to devalue it either. So mm-hmm. he just said it was different, mm-hmm. which I, I, I kind of agree with. And I get what he's I get what he's trying to say there, which is the effort that Ray Harryhausen, who did it by himself in his own studio, the the amount of effort and time that he put into that outweighs what hundreds of people are doing on one animated figure because one person might do the face, one would do the tail, one might do the arms, one would do the legs. Mm-hmm. All of that, be, because of how it is, it, it doesn't have the same effect. No. And there's something in our brains that when we see CGI, we, we see the, like, we can tell that it's pixels moving and, and stretching and, and turning so that we we know that it's just CGI, whereas when when we have like practical stop motion stuff like that, that that just adds to the realism mm-hmm. in air quotes to to the movie. Well, it's just like something that dawned on me a few years ago when I was thinking about all of this debate over the quote unquote quality of special effects and how yeah, there are a lot of people your age <laughs> who will brush things off and just say, I can't watch movies made before this year because the special effects look terrible or something like that. It's like, what do you mean they look terrible? And there's this aversion to, you know, old timey special effects, practical special effects or whatever, because they're, I think they're just so used to seeing the C quote unquote realistic CGI, which is that's debatable. But something that dawned on me, I know Matt Frank has famously said people don't want their movies to look realistic. They want them to look expensive, which I do think is a pretty good insight. What I've concluded is that it doesn't matter what method of special effect is being used. There is a level of unreality to it. Correct. And so unless you're filming a real kaiju, it's going to have a level of unreality. It's just... It goes back to the whole suspension of disbelief thing. How much do you give? Mm-hmm. You know, and the better a special effect is, whether that is something like ILM that strives for realism, or if you look at a lot of Japanese films that are striving for something else, an intangible quality and atmosphere with it. You know, if they succeed at that, you're going to give it you know, that suspension of disbelief, you will go along with it. Or if it's something like, like you look at Gollum and the Lord of the Rings movies, Andy Serkis sells that character. Like I remember when that movie came out and people are saying like, this is the first time we've seen a CGI character that is entirely believable. And that was because of Andy Serkis's performance because he's doing the mocap and the voice. 
Right. It was a complete performance. Gollum was pre- basically not an animated character. He was just a real character. I mean, to the point where people were wondering if Andy Serkis should actually get a nomination for an Oscar, even though what he right. did was they weren't sure how to classify it, what he was doing. You know, and it helps that Gollum, the, the effects for Gollum look amazing. Like you look at the CGI model for Gollum and that it holds up. 20 right. years later, it still holds up. Well, the, the, the same can be said about Davy Jones. Mm-hmm. Davy Jones is another great example. Like the, the actor that did that, he did mocap mm-hmm. and he's doing the voice on set. So when he's like, do you feel dead? Mm-hmm. All your sins bashed. Like all yeah. of that, like that's him. That's him on set wearing the pajamas <laughs> and everything looks like the detail Gollum and I'd say Gollum and then Davy Jones. When, when we're talking about mocap, like Gollum had the early 2000s. Davy Jones had the late 2000s. Caesar had the 2010s. And yeah, in the new Planet of the Apes movies. Also Andy Serkis. Yeah. And he did the voice for uh, those as well mm-hmm. for, for Caesar. But like there is really good, like War for the Planet of the Apes looks realistic. Mm-hmm. Like those apes look pretty well, like they're on screen. They're mm-hmm. they don't look like they're they're CGI. No, but like I said, it's just if the effects are accomplishing their goal, goal. Yeah, I think people and- will go along with it. You and I have grown up watching Tokusatsu. We, for the most part, are going to accept these suit actors in these roles. Not just it's not to say that we aren't aware or that there are there isn't bad tokusatsu out there that fails there and, and suddenly we're like this you know I'm not convinced the quote unquote cheapness of the effects comes through right you know we've all experienced that but we've also seen bad cheap CGR just bad CGI we've seen bad examples of every kind of special effect out there there's bad stop motion. There really there there's bad stop motion out there, but you have a master like Harryhausen in this, and I, I've done several episodes on Harryhausen movies now, and he basically had to be an actor when he was doing this because he had to he had to make the characters emote, and it's all him. It's a, it's a singular vision for these effects, right? And that's but what I, makes I think that's I think that's one of the things that makes Harryhausen effects special. Is this the best example of his work? No, but like there are still points where it is very effective. I like Trog. The baboon is, I think, is particularly impressive in this. Yes, we should talk and- about the baboon. You know, the the prince who. There's a really bad joke where I think it's Dion calls him a bad boon. Yes, you're pretty Dion, but. I don't know if funny is how I would describe you, but <laughs> Bad Boon sounds like the title of a B-movie about a killer baboon, which I'm surprised isn't a thing because baboons are mean. But <laughs> but no, I... I, I also or maybe, like some... maybe that's what we can call the villain in, in GXK, right? He's the Bad Boon. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> You're PTSDing over that. <laughs> I was just going to bring up... Some people actually thought they were able to train a baboon to do the things that it was doing back Which when it was released. astonishes me because I figured out instantly that that was Harryhausen animation. 
So but I don't know how people great. were fooled. I mean, it looks great. Yeah, it does look great. Like Harry has actually studied real baboons to figure out how to do it. But here's the thing. It's a baboon that used to be human, so there's some humanity in him as well. Right. So and on, I guess honestly, it's kind of like going back to Mighty Joe Young to a certain extent. A little bit. And to be honest, I would I would argue that he might actually be the best character. Mm-hmm. To be honest, like he he has the most in, like the b- the baboon he has the most interesting plot. Yeah, well, story. he's the he's the impetus for what they're doing. He's kind of the ticking time bomb. They're on a yeah. it's because they say the longer they wait, the less likely they'll be able to transform him back to human, and the more like a baboon he'll become. He, right. He's slowly losing his humanity. Which I'm surprised they didn't use that a little bit more. Like, I was waiting for him to actually attack somebody on the ship. I was, too. Or, I'm going to be honest, I was like, it would be hilarious if Throg was scared by the baboon and just, like, took his claw and just killed him. But that would would nullify everything that they're doing. That shows how much I was ready for this movie to be over, Nathan. (laughs) I was ready for this movie you, to be over. Oh, you weren't intrigued by the fact that we have a baboon talking to a troglodyte who is supposed to be a, you know, a primitive person and then, you know, a monkey talking like, to somebody. You know, okay, it's like a missing was, link thing going on there. That was a really cool thing. I like that part. Yeah, where the the ape is the mediator between the humans and yes. the troglodyte. Yeah. Yes. So it's like he's the missing link, like I said. That's kind of in, that's kind of interesting. But no, the the baboon is is honestly probably the most I would, yeah, I would say it's the most impressive stop motion character in this because he has a lot of he has a lot of emoting. I mean, Trog looks great. That armature is incredibly detailed and it looks wonderful. The baboon has, I think, the most character. I agree. And while we're talking about good things here, I do want to bring up that the costumes and the lighting Mm -hmm. and the icy tomb that our villains see as they're rowing by. All of that stuff is really good. Mm-hmm. The costumes in this movie are really bright, really co- colorful, but really good. Mm-hmm. The lighting in this, there's some really good, like Harryhausen is, all of his films seem to have good lighting. Mm-hmm. There's some really nice lighting in this movie, and I'm a sucker for good lighting. Yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> trying to, I'm like still the, trying to figure out why they thought European-style ships made sense here, but... <laughs> yeah. Although the villain boat was pretty creative i like the villain boat yeah it, it was a little really scary cool. too you know because it was it was kind of sharp it was smaller and it was kind of sh- it had a really sharp bow mm-hmm. and they actually used it once to ram through another boat and cut it in half i'm like why right. did you do that more often oh probably budget but eh. right there's a nice production value in it yes there's some there's some really nice production value yeah. here i think this is a competently made movie with talented people behind it the problem is they didn't have the time i think that was the issue right you know, it goes back to something i remember hearing i think shusuke i know it was in reference to shusuke kanako's work yeah i think it was it was because shusuke kanako said the big because someone asked him, what was the difference between working for Daie on the gamera movies and working for toho on gmk and he said, at Daie, I had less money, but more time. At Toho, I had more money, but less time. Right. It's that it's that creative triangle of you can have good quality, good time, or good price. You can't have all three. You have to pick two. Mm-hmm. If you want a good quality item for a good price, you have to give up time. Mm-hmm. 
if you want it done quickly with time and at a good price, you're not going to get quality. And this film definitely has the, it's good price and at a quick time. And I think the quality suffers because they're doing it at a cheaper price Mm -hmm. for a quicker production time. Mm Mm-hmm. And speaking of time, another thing that I really was disappointed in is was how quickly the side villain, her son, mm-hmm. was it her son? Yeah, it was her actual he- son, which means it's Farah and the Caliph's stepbrother. Because that was the yes. that was the impression I was getting. So it's like she, she somehow manipulated her way into marrying the king. We'll say mm-hmm. it wasn't the king. I don't remember what his actual title is, but it's basically the king, the prince's father. So we don't, but we don't know how or why. We don't know if he was widowed or maybe she murdered the queen or whatever. Got her, got herself into position. My assumption was that she was trying to get the prince out of the way so she could put her real son, her biological son, into power. But they never really say that. Otherwise, he's just a mama's boy for the entire movie. Right. Well, for most of it. He's kind of clever at the beginning. He's kind of devious at the beginning. But after that, he's a mama's boy. And after, like, when she tells him to go kill the baboon, the baboon, like, knocks him down and, like, Mm -hmm. hits his head and breaks his neck. And And then, yeah, he's done. Which, then, is a, like, which is a nice emotional moment, I guess, for Zenobia. It's not. It's not. It's awful. You don't. I even think have it's to supposed to be, it. but like I said, it's after a while, after a while, like after about I don't know, about thirty minutes or so, it's uh, no, it's the scene when she was in the jar. That's when I just stopped taking her seriously. Her, they undermined her threat level a bit by making yeah, her didn't. vulnerable. I'm like, you don't want to make your villain vulnerable unless like you have a good story reason for it or the, or the villain immediately rectifies it. Right. You know, like I go back to star Trek two, you know, my favorite movie con is very under control in that movie. And only at certain moments does he break, which was a decision the director made and told to Ricardo Montalban, the actress, like, I want you to be King Lear. I want you to be under control except for certain moments because mad men are scarier when they're under control. So when you get to those moments where he breaks a little bit, he composes himself immediately. He catches himself. Zenobia, unfortunately, doesn't really, doesn't do that nearly enough, I should say. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And yeah. But then again, I also felt like that for the high evolutionary in the new Spoiler Guardians alert. Movie. Yeah. I still haven't seen it. He had moments where I'm like, probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and, you know, and, and after this, like, I feel like she, I mean, because the saber tooth tiger was already there, it kind of feels like she just disappears. Mm-hmm. I um, think it's supposed to be, she is the tiger or she but, merged with the tiger, but then she's still alive. So it doesn't make sense. It's weird. Yeah, it's weird. But also like, Throg just dies, and and I I was like, why is okay? It's Throg. You keep saying Throg, and Throg is the name of Thor when he got turned into a frog. I think there's also a movie called Throg. Yeah, with with a character that's kind of like Trog. Trog. It's Trog because he's a troglodyte. Anyway, so while the the tiger's killing Trog, Sinbad's just standing there. And I'm like, are we not going to save the 
person that's saving your life right now? Like, <laughs> what 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 happened to the Sinbad that like was fighting off four skeletons <laughs> at once with one with two swords? Like, I like that Sinbad. This Sinbad's very kind of like uh, he's kind of done. <laughs> It's definitely time for Sinbad to be over. <laughs> well, I, I know that there's been some other Sinbad adaptations since then. There was a TV show. I bet they sinned, and I bet they were bad. Badum Tish. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, there was also the comedian Sinbad. But after this, they all escape, and then the movie ends. Basically. It's just over. And I was like, okay, we're done here. Thank yeah. God. It oh, yeah. I, yeah I'm looking it up here. After this one, in terms of Sinbad adaptations, well, there, there was a 1982 animated, animated movie. There was a CGI movie in 2000 called Beyond the Veil of Miss. And in 2003, there was a DreamWorks anime. This was actually their last traditionally animated movie called Legend of the Seven Seas. But this, it looks like this was the last live action film with Sinbad. Well, they definitely ended. No, wait, no, there were direct to video ones. I'm, I I stand Um, corrected. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. The Seven Adventures of Sinbad, which was made by The Asylum. Sounds like it. Because it was a mockbuster for Prince of Persia and Clash of the Titans, the remake. Although apparently there was one in 2011 called Sinbad and the Minotaur. I'm sure that's just lovely. I'm sure it is. Yeah. And then there was one in 2014, one in 2016. So I guess there's been more than I thought. And there's some foreign language ones and yeah, Italian and Turkish. And yeah, there was, like I said, there was a TV show. I I don't know if there's really much more I can say on the film, to be honest. I feel like. I've aired all of my grievances. All of your grievances. And I've given credit where credit is due on the film. Right. Most of, we've talked about most of, about most of what I wanted to talk about. I, but just, you know, I did some, shall we say historical research on this. So I mentioned, we mentioned Hyperborea. Hyperborea is a land that's way to the North in Greek legends, especially Mm. those told by Virgil. It's where the Boreas or North Wind comes from. That's where, you know, because Aurora Borealis, they do bring that up in the movie. They do. And it's believed that even though it's in the frozen North, the sun shines there all the time, every hour of the day. That's why, you know, that Hyperborea, get it? Because it's above. And it says that it's inhabited by giants who are 10 feet tall. So basically, you know, trog. And they dwell in the mountains. And Well, no, excuse me. That Melanthius says in this movie that the people who live there are constantly at war with griffins. That's what it was. But, you know, but according to the stories, you know, Vir- by Virgil, Herodotus, Plutarch, Ptolemy, they all say that, you know, they're 10 feet tall to live there. Also, the pyramid in this, and I noticed this too. This is not an Egyptian pyramid. At least it didn't look like that. It's a step no, pyramid, it's not. which is more associated with Aztecs and Mayans. But apparently. There is an Egyptian step pyramid, but it's a very European perception of it because for a long time, Egypt was considered this distant, mysterious land. And then it was, quote unquote, rediscovered by Napoleon. Of course it was. Yeah. 
And then, quote, in Rome, part of the grand tour of Europe, Caius Cestius died in 12 BC. His tomb is shaped in a uh, as a step, oh, as a steep-sided pyramid, and pyramid art in Europe up to the 19th century shows Egyptian pyramids to have the same shape as the Pyramid of Cestius. The pyramid that is in the Shrine of the Four Elements follows this European pyramid tradition. There you go. Also, the image of, because the baboon, because he's the prince, who's a chess master, he plays chess with a couple of characters, and that was the moment when we find out, oh, wait, the baboon actually is the prince. That actually is inspired by a picture from a from a volume of the of 1001 Arabian Nights, where a sultan's playing chess with a monkey. Hmm. I feel like I have. I've, I feel like I've seen that before. Mm-hmm. Definitely yeah. sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty. Yeah, it's a pretty popular image. But other than that, I, we've gotten through basically all of my stuff. Well, okay. So what I like to do with Kaiju conversation is whenever we have like themed episodes, mm-hmm. I always like to do a ranking. Mm. So, I mean. We covered Clash of the Titans last mm-hmm. year, and now we've covered Eye of the Tiger. Mm-hmm. Where where would you rank these? I feel like we're going to agree with the ranking here. So, number one, Clash of the Titans. Titans? Number two, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Yeah. I don't expect Eye of the Tiger to get very high <laughs> when we're going. Yeah, I feel these. like it's just going to keep going down and it's down. Probably, it's probably going to, especially since the next one that we're doing, since we're going in reverse chronological order, we're going to do Golden Voyage of Sinbad. That'll be the next one. So next year we're doing Golden Voyage of Sinbad. I'm going to assume that Golden Voyage of Sinbad is going to be better. <laughs> I would hope so because I've watched that one and it, it, it I didn't fall asleep in it. <laughs> yeah. So. so that's what you have to look forward to next year when we celebrate three birthdays, yours, mine, and Ray's. That sounds like the title of a movie, doesn't it? Yours, mine, yours, and Ray's. Mine's and Ray's. <laughs> yours, mine, and Ray's. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get too far into this, because now we're wrapping up the episode, I do want to do a quick shout out to all of the MIFV patrons. Travis Alexander. Most of the, a lot of these people are our friends. Travis Alexander, Michael Hamilton, Danny DeManna, Eli Harris, Chris Cook, Bex from Redeemed Otaku, Damon Noise, The Cellcast, Tofu Fury, Eric Anderson, Ted Williams, Winja the Ninja, Brad Batman Edelman, Christopher Reiner, and The Indiscreet One. Thank you guys for your support. I, I really do appreciate it. And if you would like to get shout-outs like this and much more theatrical ones in our regular episodes, you can join MIFE Max on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. So, with that... Well, you know what? I I guess I'll do my shameless self promotion. I gotta say it now. Apparently, I am known for say for how I say that phrase now. And if you would like to get more details about getting uh, getting a hold of me here on the show, listen to the credits, or at least the credits on my version of this episode. Yes, yours are gonna be yours will be a little bit different. We're gonna do a King Kong versus Godzilla. You, there's two endings. You gotta, you gotta listen to both of our shows to get both endings. <laughs> you know, I kind of wish that Adam Wingard had done that for Godzilla versus Kong just to mess with people. <laughs> well, see, here's the thing: Adam Wingard's not that smart, and it doesn't really make sense, so it doesn't matter. So we're we're, we're just gonna loop right back around to how this is a spiral into how Godzilla versus Kong is awful. And there, I have made the ring reference for the episode. 
So with that, I've done my contractual obligations. Your contractual obligations. But yeah, you know, listen, listen to the credits on my show to you know to hear all the contact information, where to follow us on the socials and all that fun stuff because we're on all the socials, and you can get our email address. So you can send us feedback about this or any other episode of the show that you have listened to. I don't care if you want to give me feedback on episode one. All right. Go ahead and give me feedback on episode one. I will still read those emails on the air and answer them. What do you got, Elijah? Uh, again, you should definitely listen to my version of the credits to get <laughs> to get all the links, all the plugs. But if you want to support me, myself, and I... You can follow me on Twitter at ET13Productions, on Instagram at ET13Productions, or on YouTube at ET13Productions. If you want to find my personals, I won't tell you where, but it's pretty easy to locate them. Like I said, check out my version of the credits to get all of my Mm -hmm. links. And I'm pretty sure we're just going to throw all of our stuff in the show notes below. So Probably, but you should also definitely check out my author website, NathanJSMarchand.com. If you want to see all the stuff that I write, I run a blog there that is in desperate need of being updated. That's what I got to do in between taking care of things at KIJU on the island or going on my crazy world tour, wrangling escaped kaiju. (laughs) And also, something we need to mention because you and I are both involved with it. Kaiju Ramen Magazine. Ramen Magazine. Yep. We're both involved in that as staff writers. I'm the editor. And what's your official title again? I forget. Everybody always asks The production manager, I think is what it is. Production manager. Production manager. Yeah, you keep us all in line. (laughs) I make sure that we're following the schedule. Yeah, the schedule. Yeah, one of those things. Yeah. And, And I have all the lists. I make the lists. I'm the list dude. You're the list master. So definitely check out Kaiju Ramen. You can go to kaijuramenmedia.com, order all of our back issues on digital formats. I think there are some physical ones for issue nine. Issue nine um, just came if, out, yeah. Yeah. And then you can also read some web articles that we've done, and mm-hmm. there's links to the YouTube channel where we do Kaiju Weekly News mm-hmm. Weekly uh, on Sundays at We are part of that 7. panel, so I guess... I sort of have four podcasts now. <laughs> besides, because besides this, I have Henshin Men and the Power Trip. <laughs> I guess that means I have two. If, I guess if you have we're two. counting, yeah. If we're counting the streams as the podcast, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's sent out as a podcast, and you do you have a live stream spinoff? spinoff. I do Kaiju Conversation Live. Live, we'll do it live. Um, yeah, a it, monthly a monthly entry into the kaiju conversation lore where I have one person on and we just chat about whatever. Yep, you had me on recently, and you had Danny Demana on the first time. Who who is the most? Re- you had Jack G Man Hudgens. I had, I had Jack, and then I had everybody on for for uh, for our AMA for our All Monsters Attack episode. And I haven't done one for this week uh, this month yet. Oh, but, man, but so you got a list of people. Well, we know somebody who really wants to be on. Do we? Yeah, we have a mutual friend who who might go by the moniker, well, a couple of monikers like Lord Gatekeeper, Ego Ranger, you know, Blue I feel Streak like Ranger. Asked, I feel like I've asked that person, and, and he's always been like, I don't know, maybe. But by the time this episode comes out, that will be already done we'll definitely have it done by then Mm -hmm. and then for me especially we've been uh weekly all this month yeah you're trying to catch up (laughs) 
Look, man. You're, you're scaring me. You're scaring me a little bit. This, this coming month in July, we've got another themed month. So expect weekly episodes all throughout July and probably a, a few more uh, following that. So definitely check out my podcast feed for all of those endeavors. I actually just recorded the first one about 10 hours ago, 12 <laughs> hours ago. So, yeah, because you were so tired. I didn't fly you out to record with me live. We are we are doing this remotely because you need yes. sleep. I, I need sleep. <laughs> and I, I don't I didn't want to deal with all the kaiju, all the kaiju and the layovers. And yeah. And, and Jimmy and Jimmy. Well, he God. has the day off. So thank God Jimmy has the day off. <laughs> I, I, I didn't really want to deal with his shenanigans. Shenanigans. I mean, you did talk about the documentary about his life. I'm just saying the most important chapter of his life. We can talk about it because he's not here. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> and, and I think I he was a little the... disappointed. You might be getting an angry letter from him. Just yeah. nothing yet. We'll <laughs> see. We'll see. Maybe. I'm amazed you don't get more angry letters. I'm just saying. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, oh. it, you, you, you should have gotten angry letters about Clash of the Titans last year, apparently. Yeah. I, I got nothing. Nobody sends me letters. The email is IDGAF at kaijuconversation.com. <laughs> so send those there and uh, they'll never be answered. <laughs> All right. Have we thoroughly, shamelessly self-promoted? <laughs> I believe so. All righty. Thank you so much for listening, and please remember, life's too short to not talk big. Bye, guys. Cue the credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1 You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrono, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus, by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! <laughs>